emerging 2022. Welcome to the conversation, everybody. I'm David Schuster. As we move through the primaries and head towards the November midterm elections, a lot of people are wondering, well, how engaged are American voters this time around? Here to talk about that is Andrea Haley. She's the CEO of Vote.org, is the nation's largest non-political digital voter engagement organization. Andrea, thanks for joining us. What are you seeing out there? Thank you for having me. Um, we are seeing record-breaking momentum uh, all across the nation right now. At Vote.org, we've already registered over 2 million voters uh, for this midterm cycle. That's about double where um, you know the energy that we saw at uh, this point last cycle. We still have National Voter Registration Day and all the big um, voter registration moments coming up. So the fact that the American public is this fired up and ready to go is pretty exciting. And what is fueling it in your estimation? I think we've seen a few things. Um, you know, post the Roe uh, decision getting overturned in states like Kansas, we saw an immediate thousand percent increase in voter registrations across the nation. But I think the thing to remember is that it wasn't just Kansas. We also saw a 500% increase in 11 other states uh, the immediately the week after Roe was overturned. So I think some of these hot button issues of the day are motivating voters to make sure that they participate and that they have uh, their voice heard. I do think that um, on top of you know really large election cycle and the presidential cycle with high turnout and high turnout in the previous midterm, the American public is really paying attention to their democracy and the mechanisms by which they can vote and participate. A lot of people are drawing a connection to say 2020. In 2020, that was the summer of George Floyd. He was killed in Minneapolis. There was a sudden huge influx of voter registration among younger voters who listed racism as one of the top issues. And I think participation in the 2020 election among younger voters was 50%, whereas in 2016, it was 39%. Can an external event have that sort of impact? Absolutely, we saw immediate spikes in youth voting or youth registration. We can tell when major events happen across the country, we see it on on our platform. The spikes happen, you know, immediately and sometimes organically. And so I think, yes, absolutely, moments these big moments can make a difference. And what people are seeing in their feeds every day makes a difference. I think that the especially people who are vote.org, the majority of our users are 35 and under. So I think I think. That that group of people is realizing that you you can't take democracy for granted, you can't take access to the ballot box for granted. The thing they saw immediately after the 2020 election cycle was 400 voter suppression bills crisscross the nation. I think that there is higher awareness now that there are people out there trying to roll back rights and access to the ballot box. And I think what we're seeing in this younger generation is that they're going to show up and keep showing up, whether it's a midterm cycle or a presidential cycle, and that they you know, care about the issues that are important to them and want to preserve access. And in order to show up and given all of those voter suppression bills, is it incumbent now on people to say register earlier? I mean, how much has changed in terms of people who do want to participate? How much more of a burden is on them to start acting well in advance of an election as opposed to right before it? It depends on what state you live in, but I think the most important thing, and we learned it in 2020, and voters especially learned it in 2020, and they're learning it now, is to plan your vote early, to really make sure that you know the rules in your state early, to come check the website early. We track all of that for voters so that so that they don't have to. We, you know, I think that 
I think the big lesson has been to move up the time frame. If you're waiting till election day to get out there, it's more likely that um, that you might miss. So you want to know when early voting is, if you can vote by mail, how to vote by mail, um, and really make that plan in advance. Uh, and we're seeing voters do just that at this point in the election cycle. The fact that so many people are coming to our platform means that they're thinking about their vote. They are planning it early, um, and that message is getting out there. Does it also mean that perhaps a lot of the polling that may be done is is going to be wrong? And the reason I say that is because pollsters typically, when they try to come up with a sample pool of voters, they will try to examine, okay, well, did this voter who has a preference, did they vote in the last time, in the last election? And if they did, they are a likely voter and therefore they're part of the pool. But if you suddenly have a lot of new voters or people who didn't participate last time around, then the polling could be skewed, I suppose, if you're not including those people in your sample. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, and at vote.org, we believe that everyone's a likely voter. You just have to reach out to them and ask them to vote and ask them to participate. But um, oftentimes, people look at people. It's just like building credit. People look at people with long voting histories and, and use them as a sample size. Um, many we had a lot of first-time voters that showed up in the 20. 20 election cycle, um, and a lot of those people plan to come back, but they might not have the voting track record that gets you know them caught up in in polls. Uh, so absolutely, we are seeing um, more momentum than people out there are talking about. We are seeing more engagement across um, many of our state pages than people are talking about, and that tells me that um, if we're seeing double the traffic that we saw at this time during 2018, 2018 was a very high participation election year for a midterm election. I believe these young voters and first time voters from the last cycle are coming back. And I believe that more and more people are realizing that their democracy is at stake and waking up and looking at how to participate. Fair to assume that so many of those people who want to participate in 2022, the new voters that they are women who are registering. I would imagine they are outpacing men in terms of registration. Absolutely, women are definitely outpacing men in terms of registration all throughout the country um, uh, by really, really high number. Um, and young women are are showing up and registering. And so I think that anytime you take a right away from um, the American public, it's not surprising to me. Americans love their rights. It, uh, it's not surprising to me that then the reaction to that is more people embracing their voice and embracing their ability to participate in the process. And we are certainly seeing that with women. There's been a lot of discussion about whether social media has a sort of an effect of tamping down participation. Because social media can be so abrasive and so partisan that a lot of people sort of get sick of the political dialogue, the political debate, and it trickles down by causing people to say, well, I just don't wanna be part of this process. Are you seeing that very much? And what if anything could be done about it? You know, we're actually seeing the opposite. We're seeing a lot of people communicating through social media, saying get out to vote, um, telling their friends and family members that you know they already registered, and telling people to check their registration. We see a high number of influencers and micro influencers. Remember, everybody can be an influencer in their community, um, uh, posting on social media, and then we can really see in real time the effects of those posts um, on the on the site and the numbers that people are driving to the site. So I think social media can be a positive tool to spread the word and to spread the word about how to participate in elections. Um, I think we are not seeing um, you know, high levels of, of disengagement. The numbers, like I said, are, are about are, are pretty high for this point in the election cycle. Um, we are seeing that. You know, um, I do know that at the end of the day, uh, voters want to make sure that they can safeguard elections, that they can you know uh, know how they participate, and that they can you know go out and tell friends and family to also do the same.
Um, are there particular races, whether it's gubernatorial races or congressional races that uh, you see being particularly impacted by the sort of momentum, the surge that uh, you've been monitoring? Um, you know, we, since we're 501c3, we're not really tracking the specific races. So we're looking at we're seeing events coming out of states like Missouri, Indiana, Illinois, Texas, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Washington State. Um, you know, my estimation is that these are places that were highly motivated by um, women wanting to show up because of recent events in you know across our nation. Uh, those those are the key states that we're really seeing a higher traffic from right now. And as you see that the higher traffic, is it sort of a? I mean, people say, oh yeah, of course, people are going to be more passionate, but are they as informed? On the issues of the various ballot measures of the local candidates, um, as you would you would hope, or is this really just driven by you know I'm mad, so I'm going to vote, and I don't quite know what I'm going to do yet? Um, I think there's a combination. People are certainly fired up. Um, I think also over the last few years, more people have started to do their homework about what affects their town, their local street, their neighborhood, their city. Um, people have learned a lot um, about what does a mayor do? What is, who's in charge of the police force? Who's in charge of budgets? What does the city council do? Um, people have really dug in on these civic engagement questions that for so long in our country, I think people just weren't um, that, you know, didn't really know that much about. And I think especially when you talk about the younger generation, they really were connecting the dots over the last election cycle about who makes decisions in their community and who they elect. So I, I think that we're seeing a higher level of civic education than we've seen in recent history. And for people who want to participate, if they go to vote.org, uh, how does your organization help them? How can that sort of guide them to where they want to go? Go to vote.org, um, you click on your state. We have pages for every single state. And we can tell you the rules that you, you know, what you need to be able to participate in elections. We all give the dates and deadlines for elections. We let you know when early voting is. You can go to the site and check and verify your registration to make sure you're still on the voter rolls. It's good for everyone to do. I do it just to make sure that- You can do that online these days? You can just, with a couple of clicks, you can confirm your registration? That's right, it takes less than two minutes. You can just go online, put your name in, and we can verify whether you're registered or not. If you're not registered, we'll take you through the registration process. If you are registered, you can look at what dates you know you need to, to know when the election is and when early voting and things like that are so that you can make your plan to vote and make sure you get in, in there now, early. You mentioned that we're still obviously, we're still a little bit early before the November election. Is this the sort of trend that tends to peter out or does the momentum even grow in a year like this? Oh, the momentum is going to grow in a, in a year like this. If we're seeing it this early, all um, all indicators are that it will become even larger as we get closer and closer to the election. So I think we're about to see high participation in this year's election. High participation, I think it's uh, great for everybody. And of course, some of the candidates may agree or disagree, but in any case, uh, remarkable voter energy that is out there uh, in this uh, midterm election. Andrea Haley, CEO of vote.org. Andrea, thanks for coming on and explaining this for us. We appreciate it and good luck to you. Absolutely, thank you so much. You got it. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. By every indication, the climate crisis is intensifying and that is apparently having a severe impact on food systems around the globe. Here to talk about this is Morgan McFall Johnson. She's a science reporter for Insider. Um, Morgan, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily make the connection between climate change and food. What is that connection? 
Hi, David. Thanks for having me. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> that's what I've been reporting on uh, the past couple of months because it is very complicated, right? Our food systems are very complicated. The climate system is very complicated. Uh, and there's a lot of places where they overlap. Basically, right now, climate change is having acute effects on our food systems and chronic effects on our food systems. That's kind of the differentiation between the impacts that I make in my head that helps me kind of sort things out. Um, Basically, the acute effects are things like extreme weather events, um, which can have a really significant impact on a single crop, uh, a single year of yields. And then there are these chronic impacts, um, like just generally over time, rising temperatures can lead to lower yields for a lot of different crops. Um, some regions are also losing the ability to accommodate certain crops. The IPCC uh, expects that up to 10% of the planet's current crop and livestock areas could become unsuitable for agriculture by 2050 if we don't drastically cut carbon emissions. So that's a significant threat to our food systems, obviously. Um, and then there's also this element of depleted nutrients in certain crops. There's growing evidence that grains, for example, can contain less protein, less zinc, less iron with higher temperatures. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of ways that they interact. You know, and speaking of acute, I mean, I was just looking at this list just for June, 2000 cattle in Kansas died because of heat. There were fires in Tunisia that burned um, uh, fields to the ground. There were floods in Southern China, which literally killed hundreds of thousands of acres of, of, of crops. And then in Northern Italy, there's a group that says that the drought there has uh, is gonna end up claiming half of all of the agricultural output in Northern Italy. And again, that's just for one month this summer in June, that sounds crazy. Yeah, there's a lot happening with climate change right now. I think a thing that's on a lot of people's minds this summer, um, the heat waves have been happening all over the planet, uh, kind of constantly all summer. And that is something that has this really severe impact on crops like you saw um, in Italy, the drought there and the heat are combining to cut yields and then all those cattle that died in Kansas. So um, yeah, <laughs> those are a lot of acute impacts. It's kind of ongoing and a lot of the time, they overlap with different economic conditions. Um, so for example, the war in Ukraine is obviously having a huge impact on global wheat supplies. A lot of the time, what uh, researchers who study food systems and climate change tell me is that it's not always that climate change by itself has a catastrophic impact on a particular crop or on a particular food system. A lot of the time it's compounding with other factors like conflict, like the pandemic, for example. That is such an interesting point because a lot of people don't realize, I mean, Ukraine has huge amounts of, used to have huge amounts of wheat exports. And so the idea is, well, if you take away that wheat from the market, okay, the market might be okay if it weren't for, well, wait a second, there are other pockets of the wheat sector that are also being diminished because of climate change. Yeah, climate change just adds a lot of stress and vulnerability that makes our food systems less resilient to other crises. So um, with climate change, it doesn't take as much to push things over the edge into really negative outcomes. Now, there are critics out there of, you know, who say, well, we shouldn't worry because if you happen to live, say, in the United States, well, climate change might be good for agricultural output in the United States because of how it's gonna change the weather systems and enable more crops to go. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, that, that argument is interesting. The thing is that our food systems are global. We in the US rely on all the food that's produced everywhere else as well. You know, we're not eating only the food that we grow here. 
Um, and actually, the U.S. is being severely impacted by climate change. Crops here and livestock here and fisheries here are being severely impacted by extreme weather events. Um, and the fact is that land resources are also limited, right? So another thing that I've heard before um, is that, oh, our crops are just going to move. Farmers will start doing other crops that are more suitable to the new conditions. Some places will even get a boon from higher temperatures, right? You can grow more crops if it's warmer way up north. Um, but the thing is that land resources are not infinite. Uh, if we start making new farmland in new areas that were not previously suitable for certain crops, um, that can be a major source of more greenhouse gas emissions, which is obviously not advantageous for our food systems in the long run right now. Um, so, yeah, it's just you're, you're shaking everything up um, and making the conditions that our crops and livestock and fisheries rely on be so much more variable. And those conditions, as you pointed out, something what, like a 10% fewer crops uh, by 2050 uh, because of climate change. I think there was a study by, by Cornell University last year that found um, had it not been for climate change, there would be 21% more a crop yield now than, than we have. So it, it's as if, I mean, things are, are already having an impact. Yeah, and agricultural productivity has been increasing, but over the last 50 years, climate change has slowed that growth. So there's good evidence of that. Um, and when you and combine that, mm -hmm. when you combine the impact of climate change with also you know a growing global population, more people need more food, uh, it seems like as if that's sort of the double whammy, right? If our population was decreasing and we we're able to maintain crop productivity and agriculture, okay, we sort of find a way to deal with it, but our needs are only gonna increase. Sure, and it's not always the amount of food though that's available. It's the way that the food is distributed and the way that the food moves around the planet and who is relying on which sources, which bread baskets, right? Um, so that's another thing that, uh, would be interesting to get into more in the future that I haven't talked to as many people about. But climate change also impacts transportation and the way that we distribute resources across the planet. Um, so there are all kinds of ways that it's not necessarily the amount of food that we make and the amount of food that's available. It's how vulnerable are particular bread baskets to extreme weather events. Now here in the United States, most of the US agriculture industry is dominated by a couple of a few sort of large sort of companies. Um, have those companies been very engaged or very uh, active in the climate change uh, uh, debate and policy? Or are they still sort of not there yet in terms of they're just sort of focusing on, well, they're focusing on their own product and not worrying about climate change? That's a good question. I haven't really been keeping up with what those companies have been doing. There are a lot of adaptations that uh, different food producers can try. And I think that a lot of people are really invested in trying those adaptations. The fact is though that there is not a lot of quantitative evidence for how effective a lot of adaptation methods are. And it really depends on where you are in the world and what the climate impacts are there. So I think there's just a lot of research um, and trial and error to go through. In, in, other, in other words, to sort of solve the, the food crisis that we may be facing, it's not enough just to say, okay, grow more crops here, grow crops, grow less crops there. You really need to tackle the underlying problem of climate change, the climate crisis. Yeah, definitely tackling the underlying problem by drastically cutting emissions, but also adapting to the reality that things are going to be different from now on. Um, because we've already put all these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. A lot of that climate change is locked in. 
But what we do in terms of emissions in the next few years is going to make a really big difference in how much worse it gets. There's been some suggestion in some studies that perhaps if we add more phytoplankton to the oceans, more sort of green algae or whatever it is, that back the oceans can in fact help in terms of doing more to clean out some of the greenhouse gases and absorbing some of the carbon. Is that something that, I mean, I don't know whether this is realistic or not, but you sort of study climate change in addition to to food. Is that something that seems like a real possibility? That's interesting. I haven't actually heard of that one. And I talk to people who study climate change, but I haven't really talked to as many ocean scientists. The oceans are a whole other field of science that I am really interested in getting into more in the future, especially because fisheries are a thing that a lot of people rely on for protein across the globe. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting. It would definitely, I mean, look, I mean, obviously, I think we agree. We have to, as a planet, we have to reduce emissions. If there was some other way to also have the Earth do a better, more efficient job of absorbing some of these greenhouse gases, that could also be a great thing. How do you see things playing out over the next five to 10 years, as opposed to just sort of the short term, the seasonal sort of disruptions? What are we looking at over the next decade? It seems like we're looking at a lot of the trends that we're already seeing continuing and amplifying. Um, So obviously the extreme weather events and global temperatures rising, that changes the baseline, right? Um, So that's gonna have a big impact on crops and fisheries. All of that stuff puts upward pressure on food prices. It's really hard to predict food prices, especially when you're talking more than a year into the future. Um, So the concrete impacts for people could be increased food prices, um, and that leads to more food insecurity, which is a really big problem. We already have um, a quarter of the global population is already food insecure, um, and people who study climate change are expecting that number to grow uh, because of the climate impacts on the food system. Um, For those of us uh, in the U.S., for example, hunger... um, and the kinds of crises that really make food unavailable are not as much of a concern for the immediate future, but rising food prices are a concern and that can push more people into food insecurity. Yeah, I mean, the laws of solid supply and demand are clear that if you have less food that's on the market and just as many people who want the food, uh, prices are gonna go up. And it's traditionally, it's the people who can least afford to pay for things that suffer the most when food prices go up. And the more you have poverty and people who are in hunger, then you also have even perhaps more political instability that is the end result of all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Political instability is a big concern for people who study climate. Is there a particular part of the world that is is gonna suffer the most in the short term from all of this? Yeah, so um, honestly, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Central and South America are the places where um, climate reports are most predicting increased malnutrition, increased hunger. So. Those are the places that are going to be the most heavily impacted. Um, and those, and those are also places in the world that have already been heavily impacted over the last 20, 30 years that have really borne the brunt of, uh, of food scarcity. Uh, remarkable stuff. Mm-hmm. Morgan McFall Johnson, she's a science reporter for Insider. Morgan, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, David. And that'll do it for this conversation. On behalf of Mark Gillespie, Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us.